0: Isaiah 61, 1 through 7. The Spirit of the Lord, of the Sovereign Lord, is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations. And in their riches, you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. Thanks, Brenda. Good
1: morning. We love our cell phones, don't we? I mean, there's so many great things you can do with them. You can get on the internet almost anywhere and look up all kinds of things. You can play games. You can do all kinds of things. I discovered something new this last week. You can actually make a phone call on those things. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? They're great. But there is at least one problem that we often have with them, and that is... They're often very distracting. Of course, you can get a ticket today for distracted driving if you're on your cell phone instead of paying attention to what's, you know, outside the car. <laughs> Many places now you can get a ticket for distracted walking. Even if you're on a crosswalk, if you're looking at your cell phone and you're not paying attention to what's around you, you can get a ticket I think the first city in the United States, as far as I could tell, that had that ordinance was Honolulu. And I'm thinking, you're in Hawaii. What are you doing looking at your cell phone? But we do. We get enamored with it. We get focused on our cell phone, and we get distracted and miss what's often right in front of our faces. The Jews in Jesus' day had the very Son of God right in front of their face. Teaching them, showing them the kingdom of God, revealing it to them, but they missed it, many of them. Why did they miss it? Because they were focused on what they thought the kingdom of God was all about, and so as they focused on that, they missed the reality of what was right in front of them of their faces. They thought the kingdom of God would come in some big flashy army that would come and throw out the Romans and set up the kingdom of God on earth. A political kingdom, a kingdom of might and power. Apparently they hadn't read the book of Isaiah <laughs> or at least not very closely. They'd focused on a few passages and that's what they had their little box right in front of their faces and that's what they thought the kingdom of God was going to be all about. One of our most common, in fact, probably our most common Christian prayers is the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray often for God's kingdom to come on earth now. To show up right here among us. But I guess the question is, what does that look like? What are we looking for? I think sometimes we miss the kingdom of God that's right all around us, that God is doing, because we don't know what to look for. How does the kingdom of God come in these last days, these days before Jesus comes again to judge all mankind? What are the signs of his kingdom that show the kingdom's present now? You and I, as followers of Jesus, need to understand what to look for in the kingdom so we won't miss it by being distracted by other things. So we can be participants in it. And Isaiah 61 lays out for us what we should look for as the signs of the kingdom of God come on earth. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to look at this passage together, may you reveal to us the signs of the kingdom. Lord, we don't want to miss what you're doing all around us. So may you help us understand what it looks like when the kingdom comes here on earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, this passage begins by saying... The kingdom comes by the Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to do a number of things, the passage says. Let's just stop there for a minute. The kingdom always comes by the movement of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that inaugurates the kingdom. It's the Spirit of God that makes it happen. It isn't our efforts. It isn't our planning and our programs and us doing great things. It's always the Spirit of God that inaugurates and empowers the kingdom. We can see that throughout the Scriptures. When the kingdom was first established in Israel, the Spirit, it says, came upon King Saul and empowered him to be king. Later was taken away because of his disobedience. But then King David, it says he brought in the kingdom after Saul and was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Here Isaiah says, Oh, and when the kingdom comes, it will come by the Spirit, anointing a certain one, the servant of God, who clearly in this passage is Jesus himself. And so 700 years before Jesus came, it says when the Spirit comes on a certain one who's the servant of God, the kingdom is being inaugurated on earth. And then we see how Jesus showed up at the beginning of his ministry to John the Baptist in the Jordan River and was baptized by him. And what happened? The Spirit descended upon him as a dove. The Spirit showed up. And then as he inaugurates his king, his ministry in Nazareth as he begins it in Luke chapter 4 verse 16 he quotes this very passage Isaiah 61 and he says this starting at verse 16 it says and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when Jesus shows up in the synagogue in which he was raised and he reads this very passage, what he is saying is, the spirit has anointed me. I am inaugurating the kingdom now. It has come and it has come in me. What Isaiah talked about 700 years before, Jesus is saying, is now happening before your eyes. And then as Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, he poured out the Spirit on the early church. And so the kingdom continued to be empowered and inaugurated through that. And in Acts chapter 2, we see the outpouring of the Spirit You see, as we see throughout the scriptures, the Spirit, uh, the kingdom, always comes by the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It may look differently at different times, but it always comes by the Spirit. Not by what we do ultimately, but by what He does. So that raises another question, though, for you and me today. Well, okay, if that's how it comes, then what will it look like if the Spirit's poured out on us? If God especially does an outpouring of the Spirit on Cole Community Church so that we might be building his kingdom right here in Boise, what would that look like? Well, I think there's lots of confusion among Christians today. We are most naturally attracted to some kind of wild supernatural events. A few years back, you remember the Toronto Blessing where there was this sense that, oh, the Spirit's being poured out and it's being manifested in holy barking. <laughs> Seriously, holy barking and holy laughter and confetti being poured out and all kinds of things. There's been all kinds of things that have happened that people said, oh, that must be the Spirit because it's, it's wild. It's obviously supernatural. But what, was, what does Isaiah say the kingdom will be like when the Spirit is poured out. Well, and as Jesus quotes this passage, what what is he looking for? What does he inaugurate that the Spirit will do? Well, there's two things that I see in this passage. First is proclamation. Proclamation. Verse 1 says, to bring good news to the poor. The Spirit has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. What? What does that mean? Preach good news. It's a word that means to herald the good news. It was used when there was a battle in Israel. And they'd won a great victory, and so they would send a herald, a preacher, somebody to go back to the city, to the king, and say, Guess what? We won! <laughs> There's been a great victory. So when the Spirit is poured out, that's what he moves us to do, to say, Wow! Jesus has won a great victory. Then at the end of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2, he uses the same word twice that's translated usually proclaim. It means to, to call out, to call out, to proclaim. You see, when the Spirit comes, he moves people to proclaim the good news to the poor, to the afflicted, to those who are beat up by circumstances and who are in trouble. And to proclaim the good news that God loves you. Jesus died for you. God's on your side. He cares about you. And to proclaim to the captives, those who are bound up by addictions, by sin, by trauma and abuse in their past, that there is freedom in Christ. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, it says in verse 2. In other words, That was the year of Jubilee when all debts were canceled in Israel. To proclaim God's forgiveness, your debts are canceled. God looks upon you with his grace and his favor. He took your sins on the cross and you have complete forgiveness in him. This is the good news that when the Spirit is poured out and is inaugurating the kingdom and expanding the kingdom of God, he will move us to proclaim this incredible good news to others around us. So anytime you proclaim God's grace and his love to others in our world, the good news of the gospel whether it's standing before people in a pulpit, whether it's meeting one-on-one with a friend at a coffee shop, whether it's sitting at your kitchen table, talking on the phone, in your dorm room, sitting in the sub, or whatever, wherever you might be. When you do that, you are being used by God to expand the kingdom of God. Isn't that great? We're, we all can do that. So first, it says the Spirit will lead us to proclamation. Secondly, the Spirit will lead us to compassion. Acts of compassion. Verse 1, it says, To bind up, the, the Spirit has anointed me to bind up the brokenhearted. In the Hebrew, that word brokenhearted means literally shattered of heart, crushed Of heart. These are those who have been crushed by despair, by depression, by rejection, by emotional pain, and they are crushed of spirit. When I thought of this, we talked about this in staff, and what came to mind to us was the visuals of this last week of the the bombing in Syria, the chemical bombing, where you saw parents wailing over their children, trying to cleanse them, pour water on them to get the chemical off them as their children are dying and people are dying all around them from this chemical. And they're wailing in pain, broken-hearted. So when the Spirit moves, He moves us to move into the lives of those around us who are broken-hearted to help stop the bleeding, to bind up their wounds, to care for them. That's the Spirit at work. Then the passage says in verse 2, And the Spirit has anointed me to comfort all, all, it says, who mourn. Those who mourn because of loss in their lives, who maybe have gone through a divorce, or they're mourning because of their own sin and the regret of that. Maybe it's loss because of death or a lost job or whatever, but the Spirit will move you to move into people's lives and comfort those who are experiencing loss. And then in verse 3, there's this beautiful picture of saying to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Essentially, helping people change their clothes from clothing of a funeral clothing, of mourning, to party clothes, (laughs) celebration clothes, that the Spirit anoints us to move into people's lives and help them discover the new clothing that Christ wants to give them. So they can be, it says, oaks of righteousness, having God's life in them, learning stability in life instead of living a broken life. What this suggests, this passage is that this is a world full of broken and hurting people. And we see it, don't we? It's a world of hurting and broken people who are trying to numb their pain primarily through entertainment or maybe medication or other ways. We have all kinds of ways, but we're the most entertainment-saturated culture ever as we try to numb the pain of living in a broken world and living with our own brokenness. And the kingdom comes as we respond to the Spirit and move alongside hurting people both in the church and outside the church and learn to bind up their wounds and bring them comfort. To not be afraid to move into their lives with the truth. Years ago, I heard the story of a man named Mike Adkins called A Man Called Norman. You may recall the story if you heard it. And in that story, Mike Adkins moved into this neighborhood and across the street, there was this obviously single guy living who was just weird. (laughs) And that was Norman. Norman didn't talk. If you tried to say hi to him, he would just not look at you. He obviously hadn't bathed in years. His house was trashed. It was awful. And yet... Mike kept feeling God tug on him to go reach out to Norman. And he kept thinking, I don't want to go over there. I don't want to talk to this guy. But the spirit kept moving him to reach out and begin slowly to build a relationship and begin to talk to Norman and get him to talk about his life a little bit. And then Mike, you know, being nice said, hey, anything I can do for you? And Norman's like, my toilet's broken. And Mike thinks, oh, no. I'll do anything, Lord, but I won't fix his toilet. It's got to be gross. But he finally went over there and had to change the toilet seat that was broken in two. And as he began to reach out and build a relationship with Norman, Norman finally started coming to church, gave his life to Christ, was embraced into a community of life and faith. That's just a picture of, For us, of what the Spirit wants to do through us as we learn to live lives in compassion. So the moving of the Spirit to bring the kingdom of God is these two things, proclamation and compassion. We should always keep those together in balance. It's never enough to just do one or the other. The Spirit will move us to do both, to speak the good news to people who are desperate to be set free, but also to bind up their wounds and care for them As we do that, we are inaugurating and expanding the kingdom of God. And think about what Jesus did. You want to summarize Jesus' time on earth? Proclamation, compassion. You want to summarize what the early church did, as we see in the book of Acts, and then throughout history, in those early days, what did they do? What were they known for? Proclamation and compassion. So the question is, are we known for those two things? Are we responding to the Spirit, moving among us in a way to bring the kingdom through us as we speak the good news and as we share lives of compassion? We need both. Our world is desperate for both. So the kingdom comes by the Spirit as we live out our calling, verses 5 through 7. And I just want to look at one verse, verse 6, where it says, But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall be called. This will be your calling. People will recognize you as priests. In other words, as we live out our calling in the world, as we live in the midst of the world, rubbing shoulders with worldlings, unbelievers, people who don't know Jesus, What is our calling? He says our calling is to be priests. Every one of us, every believer is called a priest here and in the New Testament as well. What does that look like? What does it mean to be a priest? You may have some idea from your background or pictures or whatever, but what would Isaiah's readers and listeners be thinking of when he says you are priests Call, you shall be called priests to our God. Well, the priests in ancient Israel were the mediators between God and man. If you wanted to get right with God, you brought a sacrifice, and the priest sacrificed it. The priests would pray over the people. The priests would teach the people about God. They were the primary teachers of the day in ancient Israel. If you wanted more of God in your life, you went to a priest. So Isaiah says the kingdom of God comes when you and I, when we, the people of God, we who know Jesus live out our calling as priests to the world. This doesn't mean wear big fancy robes and some kind of turban on your head or whatever, right? (laughs) Obviously. Well, what does it mean then? Well, I think it simply means that we're not better than anyone else. We're not more holy. But because we know God and He has anointed us by His Spirit, we are able to help people come to know Jesus, be mediators between them and God. Simply showing up and helping people find God, helping them get to know Him. A couple of weeks ago, I was in the hospital visiting a family from Cole and I walked out in the hall and there was a family gathered there, different ages, and they were weeping. And I felt compelled to go up to them and just say, is there any way I can help? Is, can I ask what's going on? And they explained how they had just made the decision to re- remove life support from g- Grandpa in the family. And they were crushed. They were broken. And I just said, I... I, I empathize with them, and I said, can I just pray for you? Can I just pray for you? Because I wanted them to know that God loved them and he could give them comfort, and they were kind of like, I guess so. (laughs) And I prayed a prayer, just a simple prayer, that God would be present to them, that they would know how much Jesus loved them, that he died for them, and he could comfort them in their time of need. Closed the prayer, walked away. I'll probably never see them again. But I think I think I was being a priest at that point. And I think every one of us can do that. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. You just stop looking at your own little world and just open your eyes and there's people who are hurting all around us who just need a priest. <laughs> Someone to point them to Jesus and let them know that he loves them, and He is for them, that Jesus died for them. It's a wonderful calling He's given us to be priests to the world. Any of us can do it. I like the way Marva Dawn in her book, The Unnecessary Pastor, which describes all us pastors, by the way, Nicole, but... Uh, <laughs> I like the way she describes how we can be priests to the world by reminding us of everybody's needs. She says this, Everybody in the world is searching for identity, asking, Who am I? We Trinitarians, in other words, who know Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, tell them the truth of the gospel, and particularly that Jesus loves them, that each person is the beloved of God, made in his image, and adopted into his family of grace. She goes on to say, everybody is digging for roots for a larger story, a master account, an extended history that helps make sense of one's life and answers the question, how does it all fit together? Our Christian meta-narrative began with the creation of the world and goes through redemption in Jesus Christ. Everybody, she says, is looking for love, for loyalty, for sure solutions to the lonely yearnings expressed in the questions, to whom do I belong and who can I trust? Our churches offer the gift of a genuine community and a living intimate relationship with God. She goes on to say everybody is investigating values and wondering, by what shall I live? God's people possess a way of life that gives direction for every area of life. Everybody is pursuing enough power to survive, a remedy for the problems. How am I going to cope with the chaos of the world and how can I make my way over against others? We who follow Jesus know that all power rests in God and that we can submit to the world's derived power when appropriate, counteract it if necessary, resist it without violence, and exert it graciously. Everybody, she goes on to say, is probing for meaning, trying to answer the question, what's the purpose of life? We in the church have discovered the answer to that, haven't we? (laughs) Our mission is to love God and glorify him forever. Everybody is hunting for hope, harboring an aching desire to know, how can I find the courage to go on? Christians nestle in the loving arms of God and trust his promises for the future you see we function as priests to the world as we simply see the neediness of the world and their aches for in all these different areas of life and realize we have the answer we have the answer to the needs of their heart and the aches of their hearts and we point them to God what a place of privilege this new calling that we might be called priests of God So the kingdom comes. It comes by the Spirit. It comes as we live out our calling to the world. And third, as God blesses us with His love. Verses 8 and 9. Let me read those. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Verse 8, it says, The Lord makes his eternal covenant with us. What's Isaiah got in mind? What's he thinking of? He's thinking of this new covenant that God has made with us, that in Christ, our relationship with God is not about what we do, it's about what he has done for us. He's given us life as a gift. We don't have to earn it. It's not based on our performance, it's based on his performance. So now we get to live as children of the king. Yes, life is hard. But now, growth is falling deeper and deeper in love with our father. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Joe Stowell, who was the president of Moody, now is the president of Cornerstone University, is talking about Billy Graham, and he says this, One night I asked Billy, of all your ministry life, what did you enjoy the most? Maybe being with presidents and kings? Maybe leading millions to the Lord? He took his hand and swung it across the table as if to wipe my lame suggestions to the floor. (laughs) He said, Joe, my greatest joy has been my fellowship with Jesus, to know his presence, to hear his wisdom, to have his guidance. Then he said it again, the greatest joy of my life has been my fellowship with Jesus. You see, as we get to know his love, this covenant relationship which is based on chesed, loyal love, his love for us and all that he's done for us. And we learn to rest in that. Then the world looks at us and says, wow, that's a people blessed of the Lord. That's what it says at the end of verse 9. Wow! That's somebody who's been with God. As they see that we have peace in the midst of trials, as they see us persevering through difficulty, as they see us loving one another and reaching out and caring for others even when they don't deserve it, as as they see us live out the gospel, they say, wow, they've been with God. He has blessed them. And then the result of all this, the way the kingdom expands, the way the kingdom comes, is as we live in His love, we learn to praise Him with all that we are. I think that's the end of the passage, verses 10 and 11, where he says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Who's the I here? Well, we don't know. It might be Jesus as the servant. It might be the people of God speaking. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's people responding, saying, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You see, as we learn to praise God, the kingdom is expanded in some incredible way as we praise him and respond to all the things he's done for us. And why do we praise God? He uses two pictures here. One is we praise him because he's clothed us with his beautiful wedding garments, both as bridegrooms and as brides. He's clothed us, it says, with his salvation and with his righteousness. He's taken away our sin and shame and made us beautiful. And so Isaiah uses the picture of incredibly beautiful wedding garments. In a couple weeks, women's morning out will be having a wedding dress fashion show. (laughs) Now, that may not be too appealing to us guys, okay? (laughs) But it'll be a wonderful time, I think, for the women. Why? Because there is not much more in the world more glorious than the sight of a bride in her wedding dress. There's something incredibly beautiful about that. And so Isaiah picks up that analogy and says, this is what Jesus has done for us, what God has done in Jesus. He's clothed us with his beauty to make us attractive and gorgeous. He's changed us. And then secondly, the second picture is about planting seeds and then it sprouts how God works. We praise him because he's the one who changes us over time to be more like Him. And it's His work. He sprouts up righteousness. We may plant the seeds, but He causes the growth. We change because of what He's done in our lives. So, the kingdom comes as we learn to praise Him, both on our own and when we gather in groups like this with others, and we acknowledge His greatness, we speak of how incredible He is. A couple weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, and we celebrated There was a party in here. And yeah, we can do that all the time, right? In our own hearts. But as we do so, the kingdom gets expanded in ways that we don't even realize. So the kingdom will come in its fullness when Jesus returns. And please come, Lord Jesus. We long for you to come. But in the meantime, the kingdom is here now. It's present. It's expanding. And how is it expanding? What does it look like? What are the manifestations Well, it comes by the Spirit moving in His people to lead to proclamation and compassion. And as we live out our calling as priests, caring for the world around us and pointing them over and over again to God, helping them know Him. And as God blesses us with His love, we go deeper in our intimacy with Him and we respond with praise. All of that brings in the kingdom of God in this world. And notice the interplay. I really like this. It's God moves by his spirit. We respond with proclamation and compassion and living as priests. And then God pours out his love in this covenant relationship and we respond by praise. In other words, how does the kingdom come? Is it God's work or is it our participation? It's both as we learn to participate in what God is doing in the world instead of being so caught up looking at our own narrow little worlds, our cell phone world and not seeing what God is doing all around us. So do you begin to see how radical it is when you and I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. As it is in heaven. Because when you're praying that, you're praying for God to act, but you're also praying for your participation to be proclaiming and living lives of compassion and priesthood and praise in the midst of the world. And that's revolutionary. How does the kingdom come? By the Spirit, through proclamation, through compassion, as we are priests. We know his love, and we learn to praise. So, in conclusion, would you say with me the Lord's Prayer and realize how powerful it really is. Let's say it together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.